Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. There is just, just, again, this light bulb moment of, that's a career? I can do that? But it truly, you know, fulfilling. Absolutely fulfilling. I've told people I've been frustrated, exhausted, tired, but I have never been bored. I'm always learning something new. Susan mentioned writing specs on a typewriter and look where we are now with with what's capable out there. And so for me, it's exciting to think about what ways I'll be writing specs 15, 20 years from now. And so I think that's a pretty easy sell to somebody who has those similar interests. This is Detailed, an original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. My guests today are my good friend, Susan Bliss. Hold on for this. FCSI, CDT, CCS, CCCA, Lead AP, and SCIP, Principal, Specifier, and Owner, and Michael Lockwood, CSI, CDT, Director of Operations, Senior Project Manager, and Specifier, both from Spec Services LLC in Farmers Branch, Texas. Go Cowboys! I have to do that every time I see Texas. Spec Services is a business owned and led by Susan Bliss, the firm's principal and lead specifier. Upon establishing Spec Services in the summer of 2016, Susan recognized that the field of specification writing was dwindling and saw an opportunity to help rejuvenate it. Utilizing her more than 40 years of experience, she created a firm dedicated not only to architectural specifications, but also to training a new generation of spec writers. Susan has over 40 years of experience in specification writing, construction contract administration, interior design, and accessibility consulting. As principal of Spec Services, Susan now focuses on managing client and business relationships, helping direct the company's vision, 
as well as specification writing and training. As part of her training plan, Susan also created Spec Lab, an online learning program for architects and builders. And personally, I can tell you without hesitation that this mentorship means the world to Susan and is truly a heart endeavor. One of the things I think that we have in common. When Susan isn't busy running a successful business, she enjoys traveling and participating in the sport of curling with her husband. That's something on my adventure list, Susan, I'm expecting an invite. As a senior project manager with more than five years of experience in developing architectural specifications, Michael leads a team of specifiers in developing the specifications for a project and is responsible for overseeing the coordination and production of the project manual. As Director of Operations for Spec Services, Michael collaborates with senior managers in the development of performance goals and long-term operational plans, as well as all of the company's systems and processes. Outside of work, Michael enjoys playing golf and outdoor activities with his family. So if you haven't picked up on it yet, today's episode will be a little different than our typical episodes. We are bringing you another one of our popular deep dives into the importance of specifications in successful projects. We will discuss the role of spec writers, the challenges faced, and the desperate need for proper training and mentoring in the industry for all AEC professionals when it comes to contract documents. We also highlight important considerations and best practices for spec writing. Susan and Michael, welcome to Detailed. How are you both today? Good, pleased and excited to be here with you. Looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, happy to be here. Thank you. Well, I'm really excited to have you both. It's it's always an extra, it's like getting a little present. It, it's an extra gift for me when I get to do an interview with people that I know, especially people that do what I do. So we get to talk about all the stuff that drives us insane every day. So I typically, just to warm us all up, start with an icebreaker question. It's different for every guest. For you both today, what I would like to know is who was or is one of your professional role models and what makes that person stand out for you? Let's start with you, Susan. I am so blessed to have had numerous mentors. I can see me emotional about uh, what they mean to me. But if I have to point to one, it's Doug Hartman. When I went to my first CSI meeting back in 1995, I met Doug. Friendly, wonderful, and from there, shortly, was able to go to work for him. And just his experience and knowledge is overwhelming. The thing I want to really express that really mattered to me was whenever I went to him, every single time, with a question, he stopped whatever he was doing. He gave me his full attention. And he taught me. And what a role model to follow. I have multiple stories like that of just people that really took that time. And and especially for women like us who came up through this business in kind of a different day and age than we are necessarily working in right now. Yeah, it wasn't always easy when we were younger in a largely male-dominated industry to get the respect and attention that you needed to grow in your career. So that means a lot because it made, I I have stories like that of my own. Michael, how about you? 
Well, through Susan, I have the pleasure of knowing Doug Hartman as well. But I'd, I'd have to say my professional role model is, is sitting right here. It's, it is Susan herself. She's taught me everything I know about specifications. And so on one hand, it's her knowledge, her expertise, the way that she writes specifications, she manages projects. It's impressive. It's consistent. And it's easy to learn from. On the other hand, she's also running a business and she does that very well also. And watching her do both of those things is uh, very inspiring. And I'm very happy I get the opportunity to, to learn from her in, in both regards. Thank you. Well, you know, if I didn't know Susan personally, I'd, I'd be sitting here going, oh, sucking up to the boss. <laughs> But the fact of the matter is, is I do know Susan personally, and I do know how much we have this this shared passion for mentorship and giving to people what was given to us coming up in our career and understanding how much of a difference that makes. So I believe you 100% wholeheartedly, and I don't think you're sucking up to the boss. <laughs> I love that answer. I somehow knew that was going to be your answer, but you know, throw it out there. It might've been Gandhi. I don't know. So- Let's talk about all things specifications. Tell me just briefly why or what, because <laughs> I know I did not plan when I was a young girl to be a spec writer. Why or what led you to become a spec writer? Sure. Well, I mentioned before, I learned about specifications and even learning what they are from Susan. And, and part of that is I knew Susan personally before I ever worked for spec services. And so she told me some of what she did. She was starting this brand new company, spec services. She was looking for help that she could find, but she was looking for that next generation of specifiers that she could train and, and bring up and hopefully carry on her wealth of knowledge. And so in meeting with her and learning about what are specifications, what does the job look like? What are the opportunities? It sounded fascinating and it sounded like something I would really enjoy. The detail-oriented nature, the learning something new every day really spoke to me and it, it excited me. And I can happily say I made the right decision here today and, and both the projects I work on are super fun and interesting. We're continuing to train and bring on new people in the company and that's fun to impart some of the knowledge I've learned to this point. I obviously have a long way to go still, but all of that has, has been a very rewarding experience thus far. Oh, my little piece of advice for you. I'm a little bit, only a little bit older than you are, maybe a lot older than you are. I wake up every day feeling like I know less than I did the day before. This is a lifelong learner profession it just becomes part of your DNA. What new thing am I going to learn today? So that never ends. Just so you know, <laughs> you never become an expert in this business. Susan, how about you? How did you become a spec writer? Like I said, I didn't wake up planning it, that's for sure. Over 40 years ago, I think I'm a little little, little ahead of you there. Uh, I uh, went to work for a uh, single architect, small firm, and as a receptionist secretary. And that long ago, yes, secretary, not admin. And I'm fine with that. It became my job at the typewriter and with scissors and scotch tape to prepare the specifications. As I did that and typed off of a 
yellow legal shade or whatever. It just was of interest. I wanted to not just blindly go through the work, but kept reading and learning about it, found it interesting. Of course, it was always the last minute when I was called in to do it. And out of, uh, I say, self-defense, I started saying, can I start getting this ready earlier? And from that, it was just the desire to learn, to do it better, to get it in shape earlier, not last minute. And, and that's, that's where it started. And I spent 12 years at that firm and went from the typewriter to a computer. And that, again, became a career. I say God gave me the career. Yes. One thing I love about that story is you and I have the exact same story. <laughs> I was 20 years old, receptionist in my first architecture firm that I ended up working for for 22 years. And the same thing. And, and worked for three partners, one of which was a charter member of the Portland CSI chapter back in like 1958. I wasn't around in 58, just saying. <laughs> but I worked for these three men that would teach me anything I wanted to know. So it wasn't even just about specs. The whole business of architecture, I learned all of it. And that has been the most invaluable thing I've ever done. But this, the same history. I was going to write. I just wasn't going to write specs. <laughs> and the same theme, people that were willing to turn around and teach us. Exactly. And really take the time, which was to their benefit, because obviously we did a better job in their firms. But it was an amazing experience that led me down, eventually down all kinds of paths I never would have anticipated, this one included. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> would have ever told me I was doing a podcast. So I have met a lot of people that weren't even aware that there was such a thing as an independent spec writer, especially in kind of the environment we have right now where a lot of our spec writers are baby boomers who are starting to retire, and they didn't all necessarily do a great job of mentoring somebody coming behind them to become a spec writer. So we have a shortage, a huge shortage right now. And so people call me all the time, hey, Sharice, do you do side work? And I'm like, I got a really demanding job, but I can give you some name of, names of some independents. And they're like, what? There's firms that do this? So I, I want to I highlight that because a lot of people really don't realize that. They just think there's no spec writers out there. And then they start making this mess of their own, trying to make it happen because they can't find somebody. Can you explain to our listeners exactly what an independent spec writer does for a firm? How do you work? Sure. We um, are Again, the word independent. So it means we're not in the firm. We are like another consultant or contract laborer that is coming in to help someone do their job. We do architectural specifications. Therefore, we are helping the architect. We are working under the architect's direction. We are working under the architect's license. We are just not embedded as an employee in the firm. But we are dedicated completely to architectural specifications, and then we also assist the architect in pulling together his other consultant specs and compiling and making the project manual. So that's who and what we are. A good place to find us is under Specification Consultants in Independent Practice, which is SCIP, SCIP.com. And there are numerous ones out there. Again, we're going to stay in the category of not enough, but that's where you can find independent specifiers. And an added piece of advice for that is call, if, if you need an independent spec writer, call them early because they, every single one that I know is like buried yes. in work mm -hmm. because people are having a hard time finding spec writers to hire. 
Yes. And, you know, not most, most architects did not go into architecture to write specs. So finding those people that are interested in becoming a, you know, a spec writer is sometimes like looking for a needle in a haystack. It is. And architects are self-selecting in that area. They are artists. They are designed. They want to do the drawing. So saying, oh, you mean I also have to write that technical manual is not the first thing they want to hear. Yeah. You know, and I, and I hear that a lot. I have younger professionals because you and I do a lot of mentoring that will come to me, and, and this has happened in multiple firms, come to me and say, project manager just told me they want me to oversee the spec. What's a spec? I mean, literally, I've had that conversation. We never talked about anything like this in school, which is, you know, that's not what they went to school to do. And school's not telling them they have to do that. And then they get there and it's in some places, it's a free-for-all and trying to throw these documents together that they really have no idea what these are or how they're supposed to work or, or the weight that they carry. Right. And I think that is one of the beginning areas of why the misunderstanding with specifications is because it's it's not. The design, the architectural design schools, it's about design. They're not mentioned. And so even when you're exactly what you just explained and they're going, what are specs? Why in their mind and their training would they initially think of the importance of the specifications? They've been diminished. And so they're still not only saying, what are they, but then why should I be doing them? Why are they important? And I think that's the beginning of part of our problem. Definitely. And the fact of the matter is, is they are a part of design because they are the other half of the information, that cornerstone rule, say it once and say it in the right place. All of your materials information and installation information goes in the specs, not on the drawings, people. We don't put that information on the drawings. And then your spatial requirements and all of that go on your drawings. And you can't build contractually your project without both of those halves of the pie. Yeah, I'm not going to go into a CDT class, but, <laughs> you know, so people, everybody understand that there are independent spec writers out there that can help you. So rather than get yourself into a huge pool of risk, consider hiring one if you can't find a spec writer to hire in your firm. One thing that created an almost instant bond between Susan and I is a shared passion for mentoring the younger professionals and helping helping any young professional come up in the business sooner and maybe with a little less stress than we might have had coming up in the business. Your firm is hugely unique in this arena. I know because you've even shared information with me. Can you tell me a little bit about how you're different in the arena of training most firms are trial by fire. Here's a spec, figure it out. That's how you and I learned, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's exactly how we learned. You don't do it that way. So tell me tell me how you're different and what you're doing there that I think is so amazing. So when I started Spec Services, it was in July of 2016, and I had the twofold, from the beginning, it was a twofold purpose, to provide specification services and to train the next generation. I have to give my husband all the credit. He's the one that kept challenging me when I kept saying how much work there was. Why can't you train someone? And I had a lot of excuses at first, but he wouldn't let up. And so I said, okay, well, Lynn, let's do it. And 
that was then setting up with my first person trying to get everything out of my head, all my processes, procedures, what I did were in my head, which is I really think is where most of us as independent, and again, whether you're in a firm and a full-time spec writer or independent, you have your methods, you have your way you could work through a job and do it. So one of the first steps was documenting it. But then as each new person was hired and brought in, we have taught purposefully taught, this is what the specifications are, this is what a project manual is, this is what master format numbering is. All of the things that people have to figure out when they're suddenly assigned to do them, we are teaching ahead of time. I did a lot of, literally a lot of classroom training for my employees. Come in. We're sitting down, we're going to do an hour, we're going to talk about a big picture sometimes, or we're going to talk about a very specific section. We work completely through Division 01, all of the possibilities there at the same time, and it's already come up more than once in will, along with the CDD training. So it's very, very purposeful to train without trial by fire. You actually have a training program. Yes. Because you shared some of that with me. So it's not a just, you know, we're sitting down and having these meetings, you have a, we've got to check off all these boxes to make sure that you have all the, a good base and, and you can jump off with some kind of knowledge. So Michael, tell me, what does that look like? What does that look like for you on your end in be learning to become a spec writer from your side of the fence? Well, a large part of what we try and tackle early are, and Susan mentioned this, is our process we can bring somebody in and make them useful and valuable quite quickly simply by learning how spec services does things that may or may not even pertain to actually editing a specification. So that might be compiling the consultant sections, uh, reviewing a table of contents, making sure header footers are correct. These little things that take time and add a lot of value if we can have people who get really good at it and they can do that quickly. So that's one step of the process. And so when we bring them in, that's primarily what we're focusing on are those things. You mentioned it before, you know, five, six years into this, for me, I'm still learning every day. You know, there's a wealth of knowledge I don't know. So coming in at the beginning and expecting to know everything just doesn't cut it. And in fact, Susan, I I think mentioned to me when I came on and said, you're probably not going to feel like you know much of anything until maybe a year here with me. And then maybe three to five years, you can start leading your own projects. Thankfully, as we grew the company and improved our processes, that that became much quicker. And, you know, I found myself in one year, two year, really leading projects and being able to manage architectural specifications. But now it's it's a mix of those things. And then we look at it from kind of a, a three month initial process learning our procedures, learning what does it mean to work at spec services, then diving into maybe we'll look at some short form specifications and focus on those. Maybe we'll focus in Division 01, as Susan mentioned, doing peer review, training sessions with Susan, red lines, markups. And there still is a little bit of that, we're going to nudge you off the diving board. It may not be super tall, but we're still going to nudge you at some point because there is some of that natural trial and error that you learn, that you just learn by getting in there and, and doing the work and doing the editing. And so there are some of that too. And it's still an improving process for us. We're meeting weekly, sometimes daily to 
uncover how we can do it better. How can we do it quicker? How can we not only develop a quality spec writer, but how can we do it in two years, one year, six months? And so that's certainly an exciting challenge from somebody who went through the program and is now on the other side of it, helping future employees go through it as well. Well, you've said something, and I'm famous for going down rabbit holes, by the way. So forgive me for that. But you said something really important there. Some people in our industry, more than I think I even realized, because they don't understand the contractual value of the specs and how they protect you, think of it as like an admin function. Oh, just change the headers and footers and just throw this stuff I gave you into it. They don't understand that you can't just throw any old words you want in there. There's ways we have to say things and there's things you can and can't do. And it takes years, literally years to become a really good proficient spec writer because there's also all these different project delivery methods that have completely different requirements, especially in your front end documents. But I think that that's a really important point that you help remind me needs to be made the specifications are not just handed to somebody who has no idea what they're doing with the content that you have as an admin function with no training in contract documents because you're creating risk. This isn't about there's only, only my way to do things. I tell people that all the time. This is about I'm trying to protect you and you will be held to these documents like a contract. So thank you for outlining that this doesn't happen overnight. You can't just, you know, hire somebody and, oh, train them to, for a week to help you. It doesn't work that way. The knowledge base is massive, absolutely massive. But I, I do think I do think an exciting thing is you can educate architects relatively quickly and easily with little tips and tricks that can sometimes completely open their mind to the possibilities of specifications. I was reading earlier in thought of the the phrase that we all know the four c's clear concise correct and complete and think of how many designers architects may not even know what those are or what they mean and what they exist and if you simply teach somebody the four c's how that can make them realize oh that is important for specifications and that can be a huge value in bolstering what I'm trying to convey with my design and in my drawings. Susan knows, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but I teach the CDT 24 weeks out of the year for that reason. And and in every firm I've worked at, I have also taught it in some firms in big numbers, taught it to our staff, even just for education, just to get that base knowledge of what these things are and what you can and can't do with them and where information needs to be and that kind of thing. And, and it's a game changer in a firm when, when you do get that education, especially when you don't hold that education in, with your spec writer and you share it with anybody you can get to listen to you. I send out little just random emails to staff. Here's something you should know. Sharice's spec writer tip of the day because I'm in a mood. But I, I love that. That's a great point. What would you say are the biggest issues broadly with specifications prepared today in our industry? Where are our pain points? What are our problems that everybody needs to be aware of that, that we need to improve? I know from our perspective, and, and this might go into being an independent spec writer, a fifth 
C, if you will, would be communication or maybe lack thereof or miscommunication. I think we talk about it all the time that a breakdown in communication can be a breakdown in the specifications. And it might be as simple as a piece of information wasn't conveyed correctly or it was conveyed inappropriately. Or like you mentioned earlier, it was put in multiple locations. Maybe it was put in the drawings and the specs, and then there's that cause for discrepancy down the line. That is kind of a broad answer, but I do feel that communication, if you have effective communication, if you're communicating often with your spec writer, listening to them, allowing them to ask you questions, you ask them questions, make the time to have those meetings with them, go through your table of contents, dive into the specs, ask specific questions about sections, divisions that you may not have great knowledge on, that can make all the difference in the quality of the specifications when you're issuing your construction documents. Do you have anything you'd like to add, Susan? Oh, just how proud I am of him <laughs> would be what that to say, <laughs> because he does do a wonderful job. Because that, and it was answered very well, I think looking at the problems that are out there is we are focused on specifications, period. That's what we do. I think that one of the problems out there in the industry is so many that are not, the project architects are like we've already discussed or given said here write the specifications and have not had the training and not had a means to get it and you at least hope there's someone that can help them but looking at it i think i think this is appropriate time to bring up about just really we've already mentioned how few there are but i did a little research on the internet and came up with and again i'm sure there's varying here but internet research 2023 there's anywhere from 65 to 79,000 architectural firms in the united states so let's take that lower number for specifiers full time specifiers in firms are independent there is no count so we don't know for sure but in talking with people that maybe have a feel for it a few years ago came up with maybe only 800 well, let's double that to 1,600 or triple it. If you do the math off of the smallest number of 65,000 firms, you don't even get a fraction of one specifier per firm. So who is actually writing the specifications? It's the project architect. And that's the scary part. Who has not taught about it in school, does not understand the importance, thinks everything needs to go on the drawings, so, and when they're given it, what is the one, if they don't have a good mentor to really bring them along in specifying, then what are they told? We'll go get such and such a project. It was similar to that. Just grab that and we'll repeat it. And, and that happens again and again. And it's a, a sad state of affairs that they're pushed into that when the project architect already has so much on their plate of the design and the drawings there. But the specifications for them to learn how much they can help, which again is what we've said, you can put the information in the specifications, the right information in the right place. I couldn't agree with both of you more. And, and both of those things are huge. I, that communication thing. You know, one of my stories I tell my CDT students is that a previous firm, like deadline day, projects going out today, you know, and I get a message from the project architect, just throw together a suspended ceiling spec real quick. You have communicated to me nothing. 
do you know how many choices there are in a suspended ceiling spec? You want me to pick? In all, almost every firm I've worked in, I have been the sole spec writer for numerous teams and offices. Like currently, I work in a company with 10 offices, about 350 people, and I'm the only spec writer. There's no luxury. I mean, you can't find a spec writer, let alone having enough in one firm to be embedded into your project. And that's that communication, especially working with an independent, communicating effectively. And that was your key word you said, communicating effectively. There's a difference between communicating and communicating effectively so that they can, most of us are kind of masters at efficiency. I know I've found all kinds of ways. I could not write specs for this many people if I hadn't found ways to be uber efficient. I love those answers. So technically, what are some of the most challenging areas that each of you, that you find in the building or in the project to specify and maybe pick an area and give me some advice on what people could be doing better to get it right? Like, I know I have certain ones that give me gray hair. I was thinking about this earlier and what came to mind, and I feel like it's it's been a point that manufacturers especially have been harping on more recently is compatibility considerations between different products and materials, especially when it comes to the exterior envelope. And now you're seeing it from truly the roofing system all the way around the walls, underneath the slab, below grade. It's this all-encompassing box that you have to contend with. And so often you're dealing with different manufacturers, different materials, different systems. Nobody really knows how they tie together. Can they tie together? Where do they tie together? Who is responsible for what? And that's the architect as well, not not really having those answers. And so that is oftentimes a situation that requires detailed communication, game planning. Okay, who are we going to talk to about this? What research are we going to do? You know, our team will go out and pull in product data sheets and talk to manufacturers reps and do what we need to do to make sure that everything is going to play nicely with each other. But that might be a recommendation for the architects and designers as, as well is leaning on your manufacturer's reps, the experts out there in the field who can speak to some of these products, or even just having a, a basis of design product called out and communicated that to us, that can be very helpful as well for us in, in specifying some of those systems. I could go on and on about other sections and divisions that can cause headaches, but that one, I, when it comes to collaboration with the design team, that's an area I consistently find we have to push pause for a second to really make sure we're doing it right. Seriously, Susan, don't lose this one. Do whatever you got to do to keep this one. I know. You don't even need me here. <laughs> He's got it. I could not have asked for a better answer because another pain point for me is the way some people, not all, but some people treat manufacturers reps. My single most valuable resource in getting my specs written are my manufacturer's reps. Now, the manufacturing companies could do a better job on their guide specs, and I take every opportunity to say that out loud because I really don't want to have to rewrite them completely from top to bottom, which I usually have to do. But those reps save me 
not only have knowledge I'm never going to have in that detail, there's thousands of products. They save me so much time. And I am so much more effective and productive if I work effectively with them. And they have to be involved from day one to the end. They they have to know a lot. So thank you for pointing out that <laughs> this is really an area that those transitions are really difficult, but just making sure you've got all the right things for a product for that particular building, which it could be different for this building or for that building. Those people are so invaluable. And I forgot to put that question in my list and you just called me out. So you, <laughs> I can retire now. So can you, Susan? You <laughs> were in we good are. hands. We are. Is there something you find especially problematic, Susan, a favorite in the specs? Well, I'm going to go the other direction. We didn't collaborate on what our answer was going to be. And so he did a much better job on, on the building envelope, but I would have said that. So let's go on the interior. And on the interior finishes, there can be some challenges too. And I would use ceramic tile as an example. If you're using the same installation every single time, then that might seem like it's a simple section. But when you really sit back and look at it, and you can have tile in so many, from a lobby to a restroom to a shower, all the different, and there are so many different installation methods and so many different installation products. So to work through and really almost work the section backward, or the way we should do all sections, is to find out where is this going and how is it to be installed, and then come back and find all of your correct products and installation methods that you want to do. So that's just a, a opposite of the from the envelope to an interior finish. To learn how to write specs, if I can go ahead and jump in with this, is how we teach. And if you are getting started, we start with more interior products because the building envelope is more complicated. But we also start with things you can touch, see, and feel. Again, we're bringing in people that are not involved in the architectural industry ahead of time. We do have some, but so I use toilet accessories. As you you know what a paper towel dispenser looks like, now go and describe that. And from that, we try to get the concept so once you're under this concept of specifying what you're really doing, then you can take on the exterior building envelope. Now you've got some ideas and where you're heading with it to start understanding those products there. That's a great way to baby step. You know, oftentimes some of us who are not working at an independent firm don't have the luxury. It's that whole, you're always on fire. It's just, I'm shoving you off the cliff because I don't have any choice. You've got to attack all of these things. But I do a ton of training and I have in every firm as well. And that's a great way. And and I do the same thing. Start with the easier to understand sections, the more clear cut sections, because now I work for a, a building enclosure consultant. <laughs> you know, that's all I write now are all the complicated. And, and I don't know what I'm I'm even doing half the time. I, I feel like Luckily, I'm surrounded by super brainy people that get it, but it is so unique and different on every project. There is no do it the same way ever from one project to the, the next. It's never the same way twice. You learn a lot that way, though. You do. <laughs> you do. You do. It, but, you know, it's challenging. What typical things do design team members, so now we're going out architects, but even engineers, you know, we don't talk about engineers a lot, but they get even less exposure. That's right. And I did a, you know, I'm enclosure consultant now and I worked MEP for six and a half years. And so I've been neck deep in that world. So anybody on the design team, 
What typical things do design team members just not get about specifications and what mistakes are they making? What mistakes are they making as a result of that that are putting them at risk? We'll let you start again, Michael, since we love younger professionals and since you're blowing everybody else out of the water. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) What come to mind are a few things we've already talked about. A big one being not fully understanding that the drawings and the specs are complementary. And I like what you said before, say it once and say it in the right place. It may be they they want us to include a basis of design, but they're already showing that in a legend on the drawings or vice versa. Or another problem that I run into is they've already have section numbers tagged on their drawings for every system that they show, but they don't actually match up with the section numbers that we're going to use for the section that includes that system or product. Maybe we've narrow scoped it down and have added a decimal to it. Maybe it's a different number, but you know, still following proper format. And they don't they don't realize that that now causes this major discrepancy if you're trying to direct somebody to a number and that number doesn't exist in the project manual that can cause issues. Another thing again goes into the detail required to really make proper selections when it comes to products and and systems. We spoke with a Rolla Window Shade representative this week, and in just talking with them and kind of picking their brain, well, how would you specify this? And they start rattling off 10 different questions about, well, what kind of fabric do you want? What color do do you need? What's the openness factor? Now let's talk about the motor. How quickly do you want it to operate? Do you need it to be integrated? What do you, is it, what, what's the fascia going to look like? All of these questions we obviously know exist within the specification section. It's asking for that information, but many of the architects don't. And again, that goes to, they have a million other things on their plate. They're, they don't necessarily always have the time to deep dive, read through a section, know all that it's asking for. But if they knew that, they could understand better that making those selections and making them early and even getting that feedback from your client of what they might prefer helps them in the long run because they're going to ultimately get the product on their project that most closely matches what their intent was. How about you, Susan? What do they just don't get? That they're their best friend. Again, they're part of the whole. They are there to serve the construction documents. That they shouldn't be scary. They shouldn't be this unknown out there, but a familiar face that they want to work with. Also, that if they think it has to go on the drawings, for instance, take a roofing system, trying to write a note, and in that note, put all the different information of the layers and everything, where they could put roofing system or just roofing system number one and know and trust that the specifications will fully define and describe that roofing system. If they really understood that it is a team and that's supporting them, supporting their drawings. And I love that you mentioned that because over the course of my career, I'll look at some drawings and I'm like, you know, oftentimes us spec writers don't see the drawings <laughs> and, the, and then you see the drawings and it's like, 
oh my God, you have all that in there. You know, I have a completely different set of information in my specs because none of that belongs there. The cleaner your drawings are, the easier they are for the contractor to read, the better job they do. But one of one of the big things, and this is such a basic thing that surprises me that so many people don't get, that I'm going to throw into that little mix of answers is there's only one person we're writing the spec to, to the general contractor, nobody else. And, and how many times have, have you been given content or, you know, the subcontractor shall, shall, <laughs> the F-bomb is spec writing, <laughs> you know, and, and giving instructions to all these people on the site. You cannot dictate means and methods. You cannot tell anybody what to do. You tell the contractor what you want, not how to do it. The contractor decides how it's going to get done, who's going to do it. You know, all these all these extra words you don't even need in the spec because you're only talking to one person in a spec at all times. Contractually, it's defined that way. And sometimes just that one little basic piece of knowledge changes the way somebody looks at the specs. You know, an understanding that we can't put means and methods in a spec. You're taking on risk onto you as a design firm instead of leaving that risk in the contractor's pool where it belongs for how the work gets done. That's why we don't tell them how to do their work. They're the experts. We're not. Okay, so this is a totally loaded question. I'll just put it out there because I know you're going to know it (laughs) as soon as I say it. What education do you think all AEC professionals should have so we would have better contract documents overall and be operating more on the same page with that good base knowledge? I'm going to jump on this. I know we're all going to say the same thing, but it's the CDT, the Construction Document Technologist Certification from CSI. And that just is, we start teaching it from the beginning. It's the world that we live in. It is who's who, who's responsible for what. And I wish it were required. I truly wish every person in the industry that you just said was required to to have that training, whether they get the certification or not, but to go through the training and understand. It's just, I, I cannot say how how important that is. The reason I wanted to ask you that question is because of the misconception, number one, that CSI is for only for spec writers because it's a construction specifications institute and that the misconception that the CDT education program is only for spec writers. It's project delivery, education, cradle to grave. It's actually, sure, spec writers need it, but this is not training on how to write a spec. This is training on how to properly and efficiently deliver your project with risk in the right pools. And the project managers need the CDT more than the spec writers do. We learned that business a long time ago. We go on to learn how to write a spec, but that base knowledge for everybody. I had a guy in my last CDT class who was retired and I asked him, I said, I'm just curious, why are you here? It's like, you're done. Go plant a garden or travel. (laughs) Why are you here? And he said, I'm just curious. And this was an older gentleman. What I missed or what I wasn't doing right during my career. And I'm just curious. So I wanted to take the class. And he's like, oh, man, I wish I would have had this at the beginning of my career. I mean, it's just, it's that valuable. And and you do such a great job of not only getting that education to all your people, but helping get on the pulpit with the rest of us crazies <laughs> and, and preach that, that I wanted, I wanted the chance for us to to have that conversation here where a lot of people are listening to it. 
My next class starts February 1st, but there are other chapters to teach it as well. Game changer. And I tell every young professional that the thing for you younger people is the millennials are bigger than the boomers, the generation. Gen Z is bigger than the boomers generation. So two generations in a row coming behind me that are bigger than the boomers, each of them. Generation Alpha is bigger than both of those generations put together. Susan and I, we're the golden goose. There are not enough of us anywhere. We are secure the rest of our career. People that choose spec writing are smart because it's a niche and not very many people do it. So not as much competition if you want to do it. But um, there's a lot of competition in our industry and you really set yourself apart, even as if you're not interested in spec writing, you're going to be want to be the best project manager on your project, get this knowledge and you're going to do a better job. So thank you very much for totally humoring me with that question. <laughs> so I'm going to throw you a curveball, Michael, and put you on the hot seat. What happens when a firm prepares bad specs? What would you expect to see as a result of poor specifications? I mean, if I was trying to convince an architect to write good specs, if nothing else, I would say you are setting yourself up for many headaches down the line, especially with contract administration and getting into construction. Your information is going to be inaccurate and confusing and possibly not there. And so even if the contractor is doing their due diligence and asking these questions and needing clarification, that's great. It's still going to cost you time and money and effort. And in the terrible event that they miss something, well, that's when it can become really bad because now it's negatively affecting your project in the sense that they install something incorrectly or they've not followed proper instructions. And then it becomes an even bigger issue in some of those time and money considerations. So not to, uh, you know, scare somebody too badly, but it can have serious ramifications. And if nothing else, do it properly up front so that you basically don't have to do the work and do twice, three times as much of the work down the line when you are also trying to work on other projects at that time too. I'm giving him a raise, just so you know, Susan. I'm giving him a raise. That's what I, exactly what I was hoping you would say. People always think, well, nobody's going to sue me over that. That's, that's the worst case scenario, and it does happen. I was exposed to a project once. Thank goodness I wasn't the one that wrote this back. 3,000 RFIs in the first month because they put out documents that were not quite ready and they hadn't wrapped a lot of things up, that's costing you way more money than any lawsuit that you might get here or there. So the the mindset that I only have to worry about risk from a lawsuit standpoint, the change orders, the RFIs, the ridiculous amounts of meetings, there's a reason architects lose money during the construction phase. And you can almost always point to improperly prepared contract documents because it just hours and hours and hours nobody needs to spend. Because what's those famous words earlier on? I don't have time. Or I've always done it this way. You know, but people aren't adding up that factor. So thank you, Michael. That's exactly what I was hoping you would say. <laughs> <laughs> yep. 
as an independent, you have to work with a lot of different design teams, kind of like I do, even though I'm not an independent, different offices, different teams, different personalities. But you're not exposed to what's going on. You're not embedded in the project. You're not in all the project meetings and meetings with the client and and all of that. What best practices do you use to extract the correct information you need out of your clients and and manage all of that, coordinate it so you can write a good spec? Michael, you're on a roll. Just jump in there. (laughs) All right. We have what we call our proven process. And high level, it's about five or six key steps. And it's basically a commitment from us that our client can expect to experience throughout the life of the project when we're working with them. And so starting in that proven process is we we call it our initial meeting. And so whenever we're contracted for a job, we will set up a meeting with the design team, typically going through our table of contents, asking them what systems they're using, base of design products, and whittling that list down to really give us the base for how we're going to develop our specifications. From there, we begin editing the specs, working through them, developing lists of questions pertaining to sections broken down by division, and we'll send those to the architect for review and comment. Oftentimes, we will batch them with a progress set or maybe an early issue, send them along, and that way they have the specs there to actually reference while they're reviewing our questions as well. And that process will happen throughout the life, going from whenever we're initially brought on until CDs. And it can be a bunch of back and forth. It could be a few times, depending on the complexity and the length of the the project schedule. But that's a, a key step. Obviously, with that is, we mentioned before, we provide header footer templates for consultants to use. When those sections get sent to the architect, they can forward them along to us. We will compile them, review them, make sure everything looks okay from a formatting perspective, update the table of contents. And we do that for every issue that goes out as well. Beyond that, if our client has questions about certain products or systems, we're happy to do product research for them. We can find out, you know, any questions they have about things that they're looking at. We periodically will request the most current version of the drawings. You mentioned before, sometimes we don't get drawings often enough or you know until the last minute so we make it a point to remind them that we do need those they're they're very valuable and and not just floor plans or maybe you know uh, a few details here and there we want we want the full set so that we can make sure we're doing a thorough review and while we have this proven process we do like to be flexible with our client as much as we can if they have certain programs or processes that they like to use. We're not opposed to doing question and responses in a cloud-based spreadsheet if that's what they're really familiar with. You know, we can adapt. We will try and steer the client maybe to use some of our processes just because we have them down really well and it makes us super efficient, but we want to be adaptable for what works best for them. And we know that going into working with the clients that we have, every everyone is different in their own ways. And so we want to be able that we're meeting their needs while being as efficient as we can be as possible. 
So I'm going to throw you another curveball, and I'm going to ask you for this one, Susan, because it popped up while Michael was talking about coordinating with the client. And the reason I'm asking this question is because most of my career has been in architecture, but I am now in my second consulting firm. And so we not only put out specs as, as the prime, where I put out all the front end documents and everything, but we also work as a consultant to architects. So do you want me to tell you in the two consulting firms that I've worked in, how many times an architect or the spec writer even at the firm has reached out to me and said, there's some stuff you shouldn't have in your specs that consultants are famous for putting in their specs. I get a header and a footer in some crazy format that is ridiculous. And that's the most communication I get. How do you guys deal with, you know, we all know consultants love and and rightfully so, not that they shouldn't be doing it, but they do it for a good reason. They put in what I call CYA language, oftentimes in conflict with especially Division One in their specs because nobody talks to them. And then they get burned somewhere and nobody coordinates, you know, and makes sure that those things the design firm should be covering that address them are covered. How do you guys deal with dealing with working with the consultants? Do you guys... I imagine you deal with their documents as well to at least some degree. Yes, we, as part of our services, receive and we ask for individual PDF files of all the sections from all the consultants to compile the project manual. When we send out our examples, there are certain, there's a particular certain article that we ask them to remove. We give the example and, and sometimes there's some discussion back and forth as to why. We definitely check all of, as they come in, we don't just check for the table of contents, but we check header, footer, title, everything matches and matches their seals page as we get that. We have to walk a fine line and be very careful because it's their, their content. So we don't delve into their content as much as we possibly could make some more comments because I know what you're talking about. And we've already said some about speaking to the contractor. We're only writing to one the contractor, some things like that. So we're trying to make as much coordination. We also have to pay attention to those that we do overlap, structural, civil, landscape sometimes, and making sure we're naming and numbering sections and who's really covering what. So we do what we can to try to make it all come together, but the content of a professional licensed person who's putting their seal and signature on there, we try not to overstep that while still helping where we can. Well, so maybe the valuable message here for consulting firms is there are problems typically with consultants' documents that could be cleaned up. One of the things I did is I developed those those things where we cross the lines. I developed a checklist. And so it was a few firms back. It was for the project manager to go down this checklist. And did I coordinate between civil and structural on where the building pipe ends and the site pipe starts? There's a whole list of things like that. You know, who's who's specifying fireproofing? All these places where people either put it in the wrong place or access panels. We all love access panels because consultants have access panels they need. I saw this when I worked in MEP. And the engineers would want to put them in their specs. And I'm like, that's that's the architect's job to specify that. It's your job to call them and say, you need to make sure our access panels gets put in your section. 
I mean, it was actually an argument at one point. <laughs> it's like, really, that's how it works. Let me show you. The reason I wanted to ask that is I kind of wanted to shine a, kind of a highlight on there are conflicts there that could also be improved with better understanding of contract documents. And talking to people like Susan <laughs> and your firm and Michael and getting some advice. You know, um, independents can be hired for a lot of different things oftentimes. And Susan has a great training program. So I just a little plug for you. So what would you say are your I can't live without tools, technology, processes. I I cannot, like, my number one be-all to end-all, too, is my spec software and Bluebeam, because I do all my collaboration with my teams in Bluebeam. What can you not live without to do your job? You want to start, Michael? Sure. Yeah, I think our, yeah, our spec software is our lifeblood, and it, it starts there. You know, everything else that we use and can be in different capacities, you know, Outlook, Teams, uh, Microsoft OneNote is great for just jotting down questions and notes and keeping a, a live record of thoughts you may have on the project. One that I wanted to shine a light on is called Rike, and it's a task management project website, and we use it. And we track all of our projects and deliverables through Rike. You can assign it to specific project managers. You put dates on everything. There's a calendar that shows who has what going out on what day, color-coded, all that good stuff. And it speaks to each other within the system. It's great because the moment that we get a proposal for a new project, it goes into the system and it works from there all the way through the very end that we can consider a project closed out. And so we can track it that way. We can make sure we're hitting our deadlines. Nothing in the system is in there without being assigned to somebody. Everything that needs to be accomplished has a name attached to it, and that person knows that it's theirs. And we can track some really cool data through there as well. We can identify, okay, is this project a healthcare project? You know, maybe it's a new construction clinic and we can track the square footage and even how many hours it took us to complete the specs. And so over time, we then have this database of project information that can hopefully help us moving forward and improving some of our processes and things of that nature. And we've been using that now for almost two years, and it's been very effective in our project management. I wrote that down. I'm going to be, I'll be Googling that as soon as I get off this call. What about you, Susan? What can you not live without to do your work? Content. We use the licensed content. We rarely start from a blank page. So as a tool, having the content and all the manufacturers that are out there providing guide specifications for us that help us not only understand and have that, but, but, the whole point of specification is the content. So that might be a little surprise to say that's one of my best tools or I can't live without, but we can't live without the content. We're not going to put that blank piece of paper in a typewriter every day. So all those companies out there that do full content and then the manufacturers who provide guide specifications for us are just, you know, invaluable. We can't do without them. There's nothing that drives me crazier when I'm on a deadline because we all know it's last minute. And running to, you know, the manufacturer's website and they don't have a guide spec. They've got a product data sheet. Well, that's only part of the story that I need 
in a specification section. And there are other places to get technical content as well. I'm going to be remiss here if I don't say RCAT isn't one of those places, because this is an RCAT podcast. Lots of is a great place to get a lot of different manufacturers' content in one place. But to the manufacturers out there, get that content to the places we go looking for it. You know, they argue sometimes that the software or, you know, a, a website like RCAT, you know, it, it costs money. You guys spend bazillions of dollars on sandwiches for lunch and learns. But you, you could have your stuff right there ready for me to take it without even calling you. Get work without even having to make a house call. <laughs> Getting that message out that having good, well-written content in the places that us spec writers look for it is a gigantic jump ahead in getting your product considered for a project. Quick, the faster we find it, we get to it, get to the information we need, the better. Give me one thing. Why would somebody want to be a spec writer? Baby boomers are halfway out the door, uh, more every day. Younger people are kind of batting their eyes at it once in a while. Why would I want to become a spec writer? And I think, Sharice, you would say this too. It can be one of the most fulfilling careers that you could ever have. You're making a difference. It really matters that the specifications are there and included. I think the trip up there, why would you become one, is because you don't know they exist. It's getting out there to even find. When we find ones who have nothing to do with the construction architectural industry and an interview, I probably spend the first hour, hour and a half, you have to shut me up at one point, even just trying to describe what the job is. And when it sinks in, there is just, just again, this light bulb moment of, that's a career? I can do that? But it truly, you know, fulfilling, absolutely fulfilling. I've told people I've been frustrated, exhausted, tired, but I have never been bored. I'm always learning something new. Yeah, you don't get to be bored in this job. How about you, Michael? I call you tomorrow with some young professional I know. Tell them that why they want to be a spec writer. What would your answer be? I mean, I think it's the same thing. It's you're you're never bored. You 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 learn something new every day, and I. I kind of liken it to you come into work and a puzzle is put down in front of you. And it's typically never going to be the exact same puzzle. It might have similarities to one you've done before, but it's going to be new and interesting and challenging. And if you like that, it's it's there for you and there's a lot of opportunity. And, you know, we talk somewhat about job stability. It's, you know, spec writers are needed. We're going to continue to be needed. and I, I have no clue what spec writing is going to look like 50, 100 years from now, but I'm pretty certain it's still going to be needed. And that's exciting, too, with the new technologies that are coming out, you know, with AI and the possibilities that are there. Susan mentioned writing specs on a typewriter and look where we are now with, with what's capable out there. And so for me, it's exciting to think about what ways... I'll be writing specs 15, 20 years from now. And so I think that's a pretty easy sell to somebody who has those similar interests. So one thing you didn't mention that I'd like to point out in talking about why you want to become a spec writer, a lot of people have this misconception that a spec writer is this cranky old introverted guy in the corner that just yells at you every time you come within their sphere. And obviously you're you're talking to three of us right now. That is not the case. I have met some of the most incredible people 
in the process of doing this job and being involved in CSI and, and going to conferences, you two included. So that was one piece that I thought I'd just throw out there. It's, no, we're not all cranky old guys in the corner yelling at people. Some of us actually even have a little bit of personality. So Susan, you were also, you had, you know, a little bit of stats about spec writers. Share those with me and what you've seen in your firm. In our firm, and I'm excited to share this, that went back, I started this firm seven and a half years ago. And in that time period, I've had 27 people come through our training program. Of those 27, I have 10 still on staff, stayed with us, working with us. I have seven that have moved out into other firms and so are active working specifiers out there in the industry. And then there are 10 that it just didn't fit and have moved on to other things. And that is to be expected. We look to try to find the right personalities that go along with it also. But I've had one one person that they were just with us a month and said, hey, I can tell this is not for me. And that's fine. You know, wish you well. I've had people stay a year and a half and really say, no, I can't do this the rest of my life. Those hurt a little longer. You've invested a lot to that point, but you still don't want them to stay, you know, if they're not really into it. So I think a 65% success rate there is something to be really excited about. And we're continuing. We'll be hiring more very soon. Well, and, and a good point you make there, and you're right, nobody should do anything that's not for them, but you don't know if you don't try. But I think another good thing to point out about writing specs is you are not like dead silent all day long in technical documents and never doing anything else. Like, Michael, you gave a great analogy on you're putting a whole puzzle together and you're talking to all these different people and you're bringing them all together and coordinating all of that and making it work. A lot of people think, my two boys, somebody asks them, what does your mom do? She writes some technical nerdy book about construction. That is what they tell people, some technical nerdy book about construction. Yeah. You know, but in the next breath, my oldest son is, why do you have more of a life than I do? Yeah, but maybe I get to do a lot of cool things while I write this technical nerdy book about construction. <laughs> Looking back on your career to date, is there one particular challenge or something you just royally messed up or something that happened that was a a defining moment in your career or that really taught you a big lesson before, you know, you had gotten to the point where you might have learned it. Anything that kind of laser focused you? you know, I remember a boss telling me once, you can't come in like a bull in a china shop, Sharice. And it's like, and, and that, like, my feelings were hurt, but he had a point. I want to come in and change the world in five minutes and not, that doesn't work well for everybody. And I learned that you have to, you know, approach each person differently. That was one of my big lessons. Any ones that you want to share? Yeah, you know, Susan and working with her, and this goes for, I think, everybody who has worked at spec services at one point or another, you're bound to make mistakes and they maybe they're inconsequential in the grand scheme of things, but they may feel very big and important to you. You know, if it's the task that you're working on and you made a mistake and nobody wants to make a mistake. And so Susan will sit with you and she'll say, well, the good news is you will never make that mistake again because the way you feel right now is not fun. 
and you will remember this and you will know next time what to do. And we've all had that moment. It can be sometimes bigger deals and sometimes you look back on it and you're like, I don't, I don't know why I was so concerned over that, but definitely have those moments throughout my career that I, I think of that. And I kind of laugh to myself and think she was right. I've, I've never made that mistake again. And I remember where I was and what I was doing when I made it the first time. And here I am now. And so it happens to everybody. Well, it, it does happen to everybody, but not everybody chooses to learn from it. Because I have encountered people throughout my career that keep just keep making the same mistake over and over again. It's didn't learn the first time. <laughs> How about you, Susan? Any defining moment in your career? I, I think it is because as long ago as it was, and it's not like I haven't made mistakes in between here, but I'm going to go back to that beginning, that 40 years ago. And I was, as I learned more and got excited about the specifications, then I started trying to improve with the little knowledge enough to get me in trouble. And I, there was a hollow metal door and frame section and it, it was old, 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 having been come through the firm. And I thought, okay, I'm going to, I had, fa- oh, I had found section format. So I was all excited about going from just paragraph to paragraph to put in section format. So I rewrote the, this very new age of specifying the hollow metal door and frame. And what I missed in there was I went from fully welded frame to a knockdown frame. Lack of understanding, didn't even realize I did it till there they are. But it taught me that even while I was trying, I was working, I was focused, I was trying to understand just the very, every little thing, and that's not a little thing specifically for a hollow metal frame, but how important the words are and how important really going ahead and asking. I could have asked. I tried to do it on my own. I tried to figure it out without then taking it immediately and saying, would you read this and, and is this what you want? So the fact that that is as clearly in my mind as if I, you know, I just replayed that video while I said it, that's there. It was a defining moment of really knowing that we had to dig in and learn it well. Another one I really like is having fresh eyes. We're looking at thousands and thousands and thousands of words a day. And you could be looking right at a problem and, you know, it all just starts to blur it can after a while. And, and having fresh eyes, I've always believed in fresh eyes for QAs or QCs of drawings and specs. Just somebody, they don't have to read, you know, dig in in detail. Just scan and look for holes that are right in front of me that are lost to my eyeballs now is often very beneficial. So just for fun, what is the weirdest thing you have ever had to specify? We said we didn't collaborate, but this came up about, well, which, what are you going to say? And it turned out it's the same job, <laughs> the same thing that we did. And I thought it was because we do work as teams. So there's always more than one specifier, backup, as you're saying, second pair of eyes. So, Michael, do you want to talk about what it meant to you? It was the same job. Yeah, I think I think it was back in 2020. And, you know, obviously the pandemic was happening. And so work had slowed down a little bit, but we had been contacted by a firm in the Northeast to write specifications for an aquarium. And we had never done an aquarium before. And so 
really, it wasn't that many sections that we provided, but it was some of the most interesting things that we, we had written about, at least for my sake. I mean, I one section, I think, was aquarium theming. And so the section was dedicated to the materials that were being used to craft a seafloor-like scape for, for fish to swim around in. And then there was, you know, another section containing the pumps and all of the different equipment that go into the aquarium. And uh, something funny that I, I noticed at the beginning of that section is a line that says, work of this section does not include live animals. And I, I laughed and I thought, I, I've, I've never written that before in a specification. I'm not sure if I ever will again. So that was pretty funny. And that was a unique experience all around. Oh, that that's, I've never, I've never done one like that. I was approached once by a recruiter from Disney to work there as a spec writer. And I thought, Disney specs, that you probably get to write all kinds of you know, Cinderella's castle. I'm designing Cinderella's castle today. <laughs> That's good. My most unique was a hyperbaric oxygen chamber for a hospital for burn victims. At the time we were doing that project, there was only one in the entire state of Oregon. And that wasn't enough. It just, good luck finding information for a spec on that baby. Interesting. But I just, I love that question because, you know, I don't get to talk to spec writers very often, but we all encounter some crazy thing. And it teaches us when I said we rarely start with a blank page. Well, but we do sometimes. Oh, yeah, we do. And we have to go go find it. Yeah. And those are lesson learners because there's all these, you know, just none of that is for things like that. There's often none of it that's published or very little that we would normally need for a spec. So you really start learning to communicate with the right people. I like to close out each episode with a broader industry question. So mine for you today is what do you wish all AEC professionals would better understand about project delivery and contract documents? What would be your first piece of advice on how we can all get on the same page if we haven't covered it already? If you were queen of the world or king of the world, what would you make everybody do tomorrow? I, I'd be, I'm going to be redundant here. I still think in the AEC industry that if we all understood, as, as we've already talked about, the project delivery, the, all the information that is contained in the CDT, that it's the world we're in, the roles, the responsibilities, who's doing what. And I, I'm sorry to be born and redundant, but I just where I'm going to always come down on, it would help everybody. You're not getting any arguments here. I don't think we can say that enough times. I say it like 40 times a day. And it, for some reason... It's hard to get him to hear it. What about you, Michael? King of the world, what would you make everybody do tomorrow, first thing in the morning? We haven't talked about it too much, but I think I would try and make more of an emphasis on designers and just AEC professionals reading and understanding Division 01. I think very often that is viewed as, and here's another bad word, but boilerplate or you know, maybe it's a firm and they always do it their way and it's consistent. But even if that's the case, I think there's a lot to learn in those sections just about how the project is going to operate. And again, it's some of those things that are making the life of the architect easier. 
And so having an understanding of what is contained in those sections and what are some of those requirements that you can tweak or adjust or change based on your preference, that, that can make a huge difference in the, in the project because it's, it's too often that we don't get enough information on how they want Division 01 edited or what their preferences are. And I think it's a missed opportunity. That's an outstanding answer because we didn't talk a lot about Division 1, but those are the rules of the road for the project. And I've, I've had younger people, you know, learning to be project managers come to me and say, the contractor's doing this, Sharice, and, and I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. And, and I'm like, did you read your division one? That's my first question every single time, because it's clearly stated they can't do that or they have to do it this way. And they are required by contract to do what those contract documents say. And, and it's like this light comes on and nobody, but nobody ever told them this is how you get through construction and keep one foot out of the grave. These are the rules everybody's going to live by. So that's a fantastic answer. And thank you. Thank you, Michael, for throwing that out there because we got lost on all kinds of things. So we didn't talk about division one. Okay. Final question. Everybody gets this one. And this does not have to be work related. So as individuals, we all hope, especially I know in this room, we all hope to live a life that leaves some kind of contribution to make the world a better place. I jokingly call that mission my personal world domination statement, how I'm personally going to take over and not take over, but make my world better, not necessarily the entire planet. So personal or professional, how do you as an individual hope to make a difference or impact on our world? What is your personal world domination statement? Obviously, with spec services, we want to provide a great product, quality specifications. We want to be responsive. We want to be that person that our client can lean on and depend on. All of that is very important in what we do on every project that we do. But I, I think something that we also try and strive for that really goes above and beyond that typical expectation that you might get in a service is we really try to be kind and have good attitudes and put a smile on our face, you know, tell our clients they're appreciated. And I think we do a good job of that. And I want to make sure moving forward and in the future and as we grow and as we expand that that is a core pillar of what we do because it can make a difference. And I mean, I'm sure you know, and we've all been on project teams where that might not be reciprocated, or maybe there's one or two individuals who kind of tend to bring the mood down, but we really try our best to not let that affect us and how we communicate and how we operate. And at the end of the day, I like to think that that leaves a lasting impression on our clients and the people that we touch and makes them want to continue doing business and have a relationship with us in the future. Yeah, it's a good thing to do in anything in your life, I think. Catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar. <laughs> oh, that made me sound like an old lady. Susan, <laughs> personal world domination um, statement. Professionally, to make the impact, to bring to bring more specifiers. To honestly, I'm just gonna have to sum it up. Michael, I just make more Michaels. You know, bring bring more along. It's it the, having this conversation with you. And, you know, we don't have these kind of questions to each other day in and day out. 
And if I can take some credit of having found him, brought him in, I mean, that would be to make that that's our legacy at Spec Services, and therefore my legacy is professionals like I I'm seeing, I know him to be and all, but see Michael right now, just that all of our, uh, everyone that comes through our program would pick that up and share it in the world and go out there and, and make that impact. And so I just need to, just to be quiet now and celebrate, celebrate what I'm seeing. Well, you have a lot to celebrate and your heart is so apparent even in your voice. I mean, you got me over here tearing up, but... (laughs) It does make a difference. You know, you think back to your mentors and how they changed your path in life. And I think back to mine, and I don't think we do a good enough job in this industry as a whole of putting that hand out in a collaborative and equally respectful way. Not this top down, let me tell you what you need to do. Let me share knowledge with you. And people like Michael share knowledge with me every day and they help me become a better professional. Those ripples are going on so far past us, we'll never know. And, and that's a pretty satisfying thing. So you get that, pat, you get to take some credit and you get that pat on the back. Now go give Michael a raise. <laughs> Michael's like, I love her. <laughs> I love Sharice. <laughs> yes, well-deserved he is. Seriously, Susan and Michael, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a lovely conversation great advice. Hopefully I can have you back again in the future and we can talk about what's happening next. Sharice, thank you so much for this opportunity. It's lovely to get to visit with you and we hope we have shared and helped other people learn today. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, Visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around rcat.com. For over 30 years, rcat has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try rcat and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit rcat.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.